Well, that was a delight to hear. It's always fun when you have children around you come Christmas time. They uh, they start looking underneath the tree about now. And uh, do, do y'all have stuff underneath your tree? We don't. We've got a, a one-year-old. We don't put stuff underneath the tree unless you want it open and destroyed. Um, but, you know, that's part of the excitement of it, isn't it? Just uh, if you can remember the, the, the anticipation of what on earth is in that box, uh, that, that, that challenge, and you start daydreaming. I remember uh, uh, where I grew up, I, I lived, or my room was right outside of the attic access, which was also the storage room for all the Christmas presents. And, um, you know, Christmas Eve, I never could sleep uh, for several reasons. Uh, one of which was mom and dad constantly going up and down the attic door, you know, bringing stuff down. And every time I'm wondering, what, what, what are they bringing for me? You know, and that, and you have visions of, of what that, whatever it was, you know, you thought your, your, your dream for that, that season, you were uh, visualizing what it would be. And so Christmas is uh, well marked with a sense of anticipation. If you celebrate your your Advent wreath, uh, the word Advent means coming, uh, referring to the coming one, or the one who has come for us, Jesus Christ, but with anticipation of a future coming. And Christmas, with the Advent season, has always been about anticipating what God would do. Uh, I think that uh, as we read in Adam and Eve, in the story of Adam and Eve, that you get right from the beginning, when sin comes... And the promise of a Messiah who will trample Satan, uh, there is the anticipation as even they name their son uh, Cain, referring to see a man, see perhaps maybe the seed, the one to come who will take care of the sin problem that we've created. And so all throughout, there is the anticipation of the Messiah, of God coming and taking care of the problem of mankind. And that's why you have the reaction in all the Christmas narrative. Of everyone who gets word of a Messiah, there is a sense of joy, a jubilation, because they are longing for something. And I would just present to you that you don't understand Christmas unless you understand the Ten Commandments. Unless you understand what it is you're longing for. Why do we want a Savior, as as the angels announced to the shepherds, a Savior is born? And why on earth get excited about that? Until you understand the Ten Commandments. So one of the things I presented to you as we looked last week is, is to understand the law, how it's lawfully used, um, that it can be used in such a way that actually undermines the gospel. When we see the law as the grounds for self-justification, uh, then it's used unlawfully. And then we saw also how the law can highlight the gospel. And that's what we looked at last time. Is, is the last point was how it highlights the gospel. And so I'm going to go to that same text, and I promise you, this is really a Christmas text, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, as we're going to start with verse 12, and we're going to read through verse 17. Uh, it is right there. I know it's not your Christmas narrative like we will do next week, okay? For those of you who are traditionalists, you want that Christmas narrative, it's going to happen next week, it's okay. Um, but I'm going, to, I'm going to assure you, it, it's right here in our text as well, in, in the incarnation. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 17. And I'm going to just share with you why 
why we celebrate Christmas, and it has everything to do with the law, as we look at the difference between the law and Christ. And so in honor of this, this passage, let's stand as we read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy. Deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. So really what I want to do is demonstrate how the law highlights the gospel. I shared with you that it did. And now Paul is going to give an example. This is how it highlights the gospel. So as he is reading verse 11, uh, as he's writing verse 11, he says, In accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted, it launches him into this personal example of how he has been entrusted with this glorious gospel of the blessed God, the one that has changed his life. And so, uh, if you just can think with me, look at verse 9, the law that is laid down for the lawless and disobedience, okay, that was his purpose, it was laid down for the lawless and disobedience, why? Well, this was done in accordance, verse 11, with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And I thank God who's given me the strength, given me this gospel. So, first of all, I want to just share with you the law reveals the direction of life while Jesus changes life. The law reveals the direction of life while Jesus changes life. Now, I know the text says that Jesus saved my life, and I'm using the word change my life. And I just want to tell you that I'm not doing any damage to the text when I say that Jesus changes your life. If he saves your life, it is within that definition of saving you that he is changing you. And if you think for a moment that Jesus Christ can save my life without changing my life, then you badly misunderstand the word of God and the gospel. Okay? So it's going to come together. So the law reveals the direction of life where Jesus changes the life. So he's looking back, he says, you know, the law is done for this purpose, and all it's done is showed me that I was indeed, indeed lawless and disobedience. But I thank God, and that word, I thank, is present tense, all right? In other words, I am having gratitude. I have gratitude. It's a continuous action. I am always thankful of the one who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, and that idea that Christ has given me strength is what the gospel is. He's given you strength to fulfill the law. He's given you strength to escape hell. He's given you strength to become the child of God. He's given you strength indeed to fulfill the law by the Holy Spirit. And so he's given you strength through Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithfully and pointed me to the service. And he says, you know, I am not 
worthy of this. But God has judged me faithful and given me this. And, and it's the idea that God does incredible things through ordinary folks. As in fact, if you ever go to our website, uh, it, that's what the first thing says. We serve an extraordinary God. And it's just ordinary folks that are doing it to show the power of God. And uh, Paul said it this way, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. Well, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck and down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. In other words, God's just using an ordinary clay pot to show the value of the power of God. All right? And that's what God does. All right. And so, verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer. All right? Now, how did he know he was a blasphemer? Well, he read the Ten Commandments. And it taught him, hey, when I acted and thought this way, I became a blasphemer, though I became a, a persecutor. Uh, in fact, Acts 26, 11, Paul writes as a testimony, he says, I punish them often. He's referring to believers. I punish believers often in all the synagogues and try to make them blasphemy. I was trying to get them to denounce Jesus Christ. And that was my goal. Because that's what he believed. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. All right? This was what Paul did. He was a, a persecutor, a blasphemer. Acts 22.4. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivered to prison both men and women. All right? That's his testimony. I killed people like myself. I killed women like this. I killed men like this. I, I, I had no respect of persons. If they worshiped Jesus Christ, I persecuted them. In fact, verse 7, in his testimony of how he came to know Christ, Paul says, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Saul was persecuting the believers, he was actually persecuting Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is embodied in the believers. And then he says an insolent opponent, all right? That's the word hubristus, where we get the word hubris. When we talk about pride, uh, he, he says, that was me. I thought I was right, and I was, in persecuting other people, making myself feel like I was more right. I'm going to kill you and show my value to God. And that was his way of thinking. Now, what's the point of this? The law came in. And with, through the Spirit of God, through the law, he realized the direction of his life. All right? Now, I, I got exposed to a video uh, this week. And it was, titled, um, it was titled, What I Would Tell My 16-Year-Old Self. That's a great concept. Just think about that for a moment. What would you tell your 16-year-old self? <laughs> I have great, great words of counsel for my 16-year-old self, you know. Um, <laughs> what styles to avoid? Don't get those glasses. You'll make fun of them and everyone else later on when they see your pictures. 
You know, uh, don't don't go for the hairstyle. You know, don't don't please avoid the parachute pants. Uh, you know, don't turn left at that moment. You know, always don't run into that person on this date. You know, uh, you, you and 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 please don't date that girl. You know, uh, all these things you would tell. I would tell my sixteen-year-old self. Um, and, and but this this video was was pointing out uh, skin cancer. And uh, it was sobering. Things like, did you know that uh, you could get moles on your tongue and on your eye and it could cause cancer? Did you know that if you have 50 moles that you're something like twice as more likely to get melanoma if you get burned severely before you're 18 year old and uh, for the rest of your life you're a greater risk for or melanoma, uh, that uh, there's not much that can be done. The, the biggest thing is screening. Uh, if you get it, it's aggressive and you got just a few years and you'll... You'll die. Folks die in their 20s and their 30s for this. And, and uh, it was what they would tell their 16-year-old self. And I was thinking, my goodness, I am never going to be out in the sun again. I'm going to wear a shirt and put sunscreen on. And the whole point was, as you know, 16-year-olds do things like that. And they don't wear sunscreen because it's annoying. It takes time. And they want that tan. All right? So here's, here's the thing. That's what we would tell our 16-year-old self in the wisdom of our 20s, 30s, 40s, and up, we would tell ourselves because we've learned something. What would God say to a 16-year-old? All right? I mean, this is what we speak out of 20, 30-plus years of living, we would tell our 16-year-old. What would the ancient of days tell a 16-year-old? He says, you need to understand. If you go down this road, it will end badly. That's what we call the Ten Commandments. You need to understand that if you worship other things outside of God and put your hope in that, it's going to end bad. If you view me in your own way instead of seeing how I've revealed myself, it's going to end bad. If you don't honor me with your time... It's going to end bad if you curse my name and don't hold reverent my name. It's going to end very bad. If you don't put your sexual life under the authority of God, it's going to end bad. And it becomes a God in and of itself that will destroy you. If you are not generous and you start stealing from others and you see life in the materials of things, it's going to end bad. If you start hating people to the point where you can think murderous thoughts, it's going to end bad the Ten Commandments, one after the other, God in his wisdom is saying, I create a life. I know more about living than you do. Listen, listen. And as Paul is listening, he realizes it's going gonna, it's gonna to end bad. I, I was a, a persecutor, a blasphemer. I was an insolent opponent. I had the hubris uh, and, and, and it is pride that was motivating me. In fact, Acts 8.3 says, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He couldn't stop himself. Now, we hear something later on. Paul says, uh, I'm a foremost sinner. And we're thinking, Paul, come on. Most of the New Testament is written by you. You've planted churches all over the place. Notice that he says, I am present tense foremost sinner not i was i am and we think of that and we think well paul you're just kind of you're really putting it out there i mean that's just like false humility or something there but you need to understand something 
What Paul had discovered through the law was the seed that was in every sinner. And it's kind of like an acorn. You get a couple acorns. One may fall into a, a well, a water well. It has all this water but no soil. And it's, it's going to rot. And another acorn is going to fall where there's water, where there's soil, there's, there's, there's the, uh, everything that's needed for it to grow. And that grows up into a huge oak tree. What's the difference? Did one acorn have less power than another? No. The same vitality was in each acorn. Uh, the difference was the environment. Different in the environment. In other words, the same acorn that's in Hitler's life is also in your life. The difference may be just the environment. We're not Hitlers because of any lack of talent. We've got the talent to be a Hitler. Okay? The fact that we're not is only the grace of God. The fact that there's any measure of any kind of goodness in your life is nothing but the grace of God and the environment that he's placed you in. It is within each one of us. There's not something that says to me, I was just looking at a, um, a news where um, someone burned a woman alive in an elevator in New York. And they had a video, of this, or a picture of this guy before he does it. And I'm thinking, what on earth gets into a person to do things like that? And if I examine my heart, I'll find the answer. I'll find the answer in my own heart. And so this is what Paul is saying. The law reveals the direction of my life. It reveals this is where I'm going. But notice as we keep on reading verse 13. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. All right. So in other words, he wasn't presumptuous and defying the sin. He just did not regard who Jesus was. Did not know who he was. Verse 14 The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, the law revealed my life where I was going, but Jesus actually came and changed it through grace, through mercy. Now, it's interesting that word, the grace of our Lord overflowed or abounded. Um, Some of your translations might say, uh, if you think about this, if you you want something to drink, you, you get a cup and you say, hey, can you fill up my cup? All right. Fill to the top. Uh, okay, abound, abound the drink in my cup. What does that mean? It's going to go over the lip. It's getting on my hands. All right. Paul wasn't content with that word abound. He added a, a preposition, and it's the word hyper. Okay, above and beyond. I mean, he's making up words. Above and beyond abounding. So what does that mean? I've got my cup here, and someone takes a big Gatorade cooler and dumps it on me. All right. This is, this is the idea that, that Paul is bringing out. He says, this is what the grace of God has done in my life. The grace of God has not just filled up my cup. It's not just spilling over to my hands. It is over and beyond abounding in my life with the faith, which is the response to grace, and love that are in Christ Jesus. When Jesus Christ came in through Jesus with such a measure of grace that it is overflowing my life. And I don't understand why, because it's not in me for God to give me grace. Now, how does, how, how does that happen? Paul is saying, God has changed my life through Jesus Christ. It, it, it is the grace of God that changes me. It's Jesus that's changing me. Verse 16, he explains how it is. Or verse 15, rather. The law condemns our life while Christ saves our life. The law directs it, our life, gives us direction, but it also 
condemns us. But Jesus Christ comes in and saves our life. The saying, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, really listen to this. There is no point of argument here. Everybody come to understand this one idea. Verse 15. What is it? That Jesus Christ came into the world. All right, that phrasing came into the world. Incarnation. All right. Jesus existed before the world. He wasn't born just born in this world he came into this world and so it's the idea of incarnation it's the idea of christmas what it is about why did he come into the world he came into the world to save sinners the whole point of christmas is that god wanted to save sinners god wanted to change sinners that's the whole point of christmas you think about matthew 121 the angel speaks to Joseph, trying to help him understand what's going on with, with Mary. And he says to him, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from the government. You remember your Christmas story? Is it up there? Oh, okay, yeah. There's no suspense. All right. He will save their people, not from the government. He will save the people from their sins. Christmas story. As the angel said unto the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The theme that you see in the Christmas story is that it's not just a king. It's a Savior that has come into our life because the law has been coming to us and condemning us and telling us you are not a part of God. You have a rebellious, prideful, lustful, murderous, lying heart. And that's your life. Unless something comes in and changes it. We're all up the creek. And so, a Savior is born. Notice, Christ Jesus came to the world to teach sinners. That's not what it says, is it? Everybody talks about Jesus as the great teacher. And he has great teaching techniques. I'm sure he was great in that. But that wasn't the point. It wasn't just to teach you. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the greatest sermons you will ever listen to and examine and change your life. But it's not just to teach you. Jesus Christ came into the world to help sinners. No. I, how, how do you help a dead fish? You know? There, there's no help for that dead fish. You fry him up. All right? There's, there's no help. For a dead fish. I need more than help. Jesus Christ came into the world to inspire sinners. And it is an inspiring story what Jesus Christ did. But I'm going to tell you, you cannot inspire people in the cemetery. You know what? You can tell them powerful stories. I mean, you can you'd be crying and telling them these moving stories, but it doesn't cause a change in them. It doesn't inspire them. I need more than inspiration. Jesus Christ came into the world not as a Buddha to point people to the truth. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners is the point. And so, <laughs> that's what he does. I think there's some there's some powerful stories about this and some thoughts. You know, Paul Paul captured this. He realized I, I'm the foremost sinner he saved. He says, as he 
save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He, he says some incredible things like I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church, but then I work harder than any of them. And we read that and we think, well, that's false humility and, and pride. That, you know what? Paul, get it straight. See, he is not living about false humility and pride. He's just telling it as it is. You need to understand, I've got within me, and I've practiced out within me the sin that is the rebellion against God, but Jesus Christ, by his grace, has changed me. I am both. I am both. So, Luke 7, verse 47, Jesus has an interesting encounter. He, uh, he's sitting at a, a religious leader's home. They're, they're making a nice spread. You know, he's, he's hosting him. And... Uh, as he's there, the Bible says a, a sinful woman comes in, a woman who's a known sinner comes in and starts kissing his feet, washing his feet, just seems to be all over him. And everybody's like, what? You know, Jesus, you need to just get this woman away from me. This is going to ruin your reputation. And so Jesus responds to the, his host. He says, you know, you've not, you've not washed my feet or had a servant wash my feet which was the normal custom but i've come in here and this woman has not stopped washing my feet with her tears she's broken an alabaster vase and putting this ointment on me and I mean, the room smells with this woman's devotion and gratitude and he tells this story to this to this man and he says you know there was a, a master and he had two servants and one owed him 50 denarii which was a considerable amount of money but another one owned a thousand some denarii which was an there was no hope of repaying something like this. This is like someone owing uh, a, a few thousand dollars versus someone who owes a few million dollars. But both of them come to him and, and both have their debt forgiven. And he asks this question, which one loves the most? And the hostess says, well, it's the one who's been forgiven the most. will love the most. And he says, that's why this woman is putting alabaster, breaking this flask, putting this ointment over me and why she's crying over me and you've not done one thing because you think you've not been forgiven much but this woman knows she's been forgiven much now let me ask you this question did the woman sin more than the man did the woman sin any more than the man i don't know we don't know their lifestyle we all the one has a good reputation and the other one did not. But which one, if died, would go to hell and go to heaven according to Jesus? Both had the acorn. Both had the acorn of sin. One had it in a different environment. But the other one had an environment where they said, yeah, I've got this acorn of sin, but if I do all the right stuff, no one realizes I've got this acorn of sin. The law comes in, and we read stories like that, and when some of us who grew up in church are thinking, you know what, I, I don't have that testimony where I just went wild and crazy, and I, my, I almost died a few times in my life, and God saved me, and, and those folks come to know the Lord, and man, they just, bam, seem excited for the Lord. I don't have that, t- I mean, I just grew up in church, I mean, I kept on going, I, I was a good boy, I didn't do a lot of bad stuff, you know, so am I just doomed to have half-hearted devotion to God? I just envy those folks who almost died a few times and God saved them. Have you ever thought that? I have. I'm just doomed to be half-hearted, complacent in my love to God because I've not been forgiven much. <laughs> I, I, listen, you're deceiving yourself. 
I'm deceiving myself. The law comes to tell us. You are an abomination before God. You have a prideful heart and rebellion against God. And the only reason that you think that you've got something good for you is because you're looking at other people and you're not looking at the law. If you look at the law and you study the law, it tells me the direction of my heart. And it is good for us to consider this to see how much God has forgiven me. If I don't think I I can love God much because I've been forgiven much, because I have not looked at the law of God enough to see the standard. And that's why, that's one of the reasons I wanted you to understand the law of God, to understand how much we all have been forgiven. The biggest repenter experiences grace. Now here's, here's, the, here's the incredible thing. I, I can't get past this verse. I've shared it with you a number of times. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what blows me away all the time is that it's not like God just bore my sin. Jesus became my sin. I can't get, get over that. He became my sin. He became my idolatry, became uh, my pride. He became uh, my callous ways toward God, lack of devotion, and my pride and rebellion against God. He became that murderous thought that I have. He became that jealous, greedy thought. He became that lust that I submitted my heart toward. He became uh, these uh, thieving things, my ungenerous or my um, hoarding self. He became that. George Herbert wrote a poem, Of all ye who pass by, behold and see. Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all, but only me was ever grief like mine. I'm the one who stole the fruit, but Jesus is the one who climbed the tree. He became that sacrifice to benefit all mankind, all but himself. Now, we read this, and we come to verse 16. The law condemns our life, while Christ saves our life, the law condemns all, but Jesus Christ can change all. This is verse 16. But I received mercy. I, I was mercied, literally is what he says. I was mercied for this reason. This is why. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example. All right? Example. Uh, as It's not just a pattern, but a super pattern to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul is saying, consider me. I'm the worst. I'm the foremost. And we think, Paul, you know, really, listen, can you imagine going to Jerusalem, going to the big church, all right? You're going to corporate worship. And you see, you see Noel over there. Hey, there's Noel. Where's your husband? Oh, that's right. I was the one who took her husband to prison. 
I was the reason her husband's not alive. You think that'd be a little awkward? Come to church? You see the children sing? Some of them orphans because of you? <laughs> you get, you, can you get the picture here? What Paul's dealing with when he goes back to Jerusalem and then, then he realizes, oh, I did this all over Damascus and other places and, and now they're spread out. It's possible that as he goes from place to place and these Jews are scattered, <laughs> that there's someone in every church can talk about the former Saul, the one before Christ. I mean, I know sometimes our tendency is when we do something bad, we kind of want to leave church because everyone sees what we did bad and kind of you know, embarrasses us. So we'll go to some other church so we can get a clean start. That's human nature. We're kind of, we kind of go that way. It's, it's, it's not a good nature. It's our sinful nature, prideful nature that we do that. It's not redemptive nature. But Paul, he goes from place to place and, and they're scattered everywhere. And Paul says, I praise God. That I'm a new creation. There is no condemnation no longer in Christ Jesus for me. He held on to that. He says, I consider me. I receive mercy for this reason that in me as a foremost Christ might display his perfect patience. Now, perfect patience. What is patience? The ability to hold out under provocation. In other words, someone's provoking you, and you still hold out your wrath. Some of us think, oh, I am really a patient person. I remember one time I was asked, and when was the last time I got angry, and I, I, could, I had a hard time remembering. I remember answering that question, and now, that was before I got married, before I had kids. I just never was provoked much. I said, yeah, I'm a patient person. I rarely ever get angry. <laughs> I just was in the right environment. All right? Now having kids, family, it's a continual thing. Struggling. But it's, it's the idea that being tested, being provoked, and I don't get angry. That's patience. I mean, anybody became likable when everything's going their way. That's not patience. That's just You've got to charm life for that moment. That's what that is. Patience is, is being provoked and yet holding out. Jesus Christ. Why, why did he give mercy to Paul? So that he might display his perfect patience. He says, consider Paul. Consider how he provoked me. How he persecuted me. How he took my children who I love and killed them and put them in prison and got them to say the ungodly, nasty things about me. That was his motivation. He was provoking me. I give mercy. I give mercy. Paul says, consider that he gave mercy to me as a way to say God can give mercy to any. God can give mercy to any. Sometimes we're thinking, you know what? I've done too much. I've got too long of bad habits in my life. I can't see myself ever changing. God cannot change me. This passage is written for you. To say that God can change 
you. There's enough mercy. There's enough grace. There's enough spirit of God that still is there to change your life. And this is for those of us who think, well, God hasn't had to do much in my life. I was already pretty good. I'm going to tell you, if you are under that delusion, you are at this moment provoking him. Just with that thought, you're provoking God to say, I, God doesn't really need much help. I mean, he doesn't need much to do in my life. He's thinking, I made you. The very breath you breathe, the lungs, the power to do that came from me, and the air that you use to breathe is coming from me. The heartbeat that you've got is coming from me. The shelter, the, the ground that you stand on is there because I will it to be at this moment in time. And you say you don't know me. I, can you see the provocations there? And God says, I've got mercy. I've got patience. And when any, any person comes and says, God, forgive me, a sinner, it is the power of God at work. It is a miracle at work. And it is a glorifying to God. As when the greatest opponent comes and surrenders the heart to Christ. This mercy glorifies the Father. He says, I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Eternal life is such a high quality, I can never earn it. I can never work for it. I can never do enough. I can never pray enough. I can never give enough. I can never read the Bible enough. It is beyond that. And to say that it can be achieved by doing these things is belittling the glory of God and the eternal life. But what we cannot earn, God gives. And, and notice the response. Verse 17. You read verse 17, you read verse 16, and you wonder, okay, uh, where's the conjunction? I need a conjunction between 16 and 17. Where is the, the word of linking? Some kind of linking word. What's the rationale for 17 being here and following verse 16 or preceding verse 18? What's the rationale for it being there? And you don't see any kind of rationale for it being there. You know why? Because Paul instantly jumped from considering the mercy of God... God's perfect patience displayed in him as one of the foremost of sinners. And he's thinking, Oh, God, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the God only wise, be all glory and power to you. You know what that is? There's no planning for that. That is spontaneous worship that comes from the understanding what God has done. What you've got here is the law and Christ coming together. The law and Christ both produce worship from the heart. The law and Christ coming together. I've shared with you before that apart from Christ, we could not worship God. Because all we're doing is, God says, okay, you shall have no other gods before me. Yes, sir. I'll have no other gods before me. I'm going to go down that way. 
But the thing is, is we start worshiping God so that God will take care of us. And who's really be worshiping? We see it as a formula. If I do all these things, then God's going to take care of me and I'm really the chief end of it all. I can't worship God that way. I'm worshiping myself and I'm using God. But grace comes in. Christ comes in. And in such a beautiful, amazing way, He stills my heart. He stills our hearts so that we want to praise God. And we say, God, may I live or die, whatever doesn't matter. I've been encountered, I've come across someone so beautiful, so loving, so holy, so majestic, so wise, and I can't get past it. And just at the memory of what you've done produces this instantaneous, spontaneous worship where we go not to ourselves, not to church life, oh God, how you make me feel, but no, just lifting up God to the King of ages, the immortal, the invisible, the God, only God that's there, be honor and glory be for you Forever and ever. And I think about that and I hear that. And I think, you know, that sounds familiar. Familiar. It sounds like what I read about in Revelation, how it describes heaven. That there's constant chanting going toward heaven. That, that's what happens in heaven. And then I think, well, you know what? Jesus did pray that as your will is done in heaven, let it be done on earth. And so as the gospel comes in my life, Jesus comes in my life as a side effect. Wouldn't you know it? I start sounding like people in heaven. I start sounding like the praise of heaven. Spontaneous. Let me just ask you this question. Have you ever in your life, just in considering what God has done, just broken down and cried over it? Or maybe you just shouted out over the Lord about it? Has that ever happened in your life? Are you just saying, no, we just save that for the charismatic folks. You know, you go, to, go to that church down that way, you know. That's what they do. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that's not a style. It's not a style thing. That's just a gratitude thing. You don't have to do it in front of everybody, but I'm going to just ask, has it ever been done in your life, in your heart? This exuberance, this heartfelt cry of gratitude. The law and Christ both produce worship from the heart. Hugh Latimer is back 1500s. He was called the preacher of the English Reformation. He owed a lot to his mentor, who was Thomas Limey. You don't hear much about him, but he's a quiet scholar in Cambridge University. He was enraptured by, by a, name, a man by the name of Erasmus. Erasmus was one of the first to write the Bible, the New Testament, in Latin, which was the language they could read, uh, scholars could read. And uh, he acquired a Greek New Testament from Erasmus. As he poured over this New Testament in Latin. He came across this verse, verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Later on, he described, he said, that one sentence, through God's instruction and inworking, did so exhilarate my heart, which before was wounded with the guilt of my sins, that immediately I found wonderful comfort and quietness in my soul. My bruised bones leapt for joy. He wanted to share his conversion with others, but this was about the same time that Martin Luther was getting it handled to him pretty hard by the church leaders. Reformation was not popular. He was, in fact, Martin Luther was attacked by men like Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer was one of his students. But as Blindy, Blindy listened to 
young Latimer railed against the Reformation. He prayed this unusual prayer. Oh God, I am but little by building. I shall never do any great thing for thee, but give me the soul of that man, Hugh Latimer. And what wonders he shall do in that most holy name. One day he pulled Latimer aside. He said, oh sir, for God's sake, hear my confession. Latimer sat, listened, as, as he spoke about this New Testament, and this verse that he read. And he drew out this book and opened it to this passage. Heavy underlined, 1 Timothy 1.15. As Latimer read these words, he himself saw the pure and simple truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners. The effect in Latimer was reminiscent of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Tears poured down his cheeks, and in that moment he too was born again. Both men later perished at the stake, burnt by flames. But those flames were lighting things in England that could not be put out. Have you grabbed on to the fact that Jesus Christ came to save sinners? Are you a sinner? If you're a sinner, this is the greatest news you could ever hear. But if you're holding on to say, I'm not really all that bad, then it won't produce much praise. Too much is forgiven. Much love goes. Is your cold is your love cold? Is your heart hard, calloused? You think, well, you know, all right, pastor. Time's up. Let's go. I'll think about this later on. I'm just bringing to you the truths that are eternally worthy of praise. If your heart's cold, perhaps it's because you don't see yourself so much as a sinner. The law is given so that when Christmas comes, there is great praise and joy to this world that you want to go and tell it on the mountain. You want to praise our holy God, the immortal, invisible, the only God. All glory, all honor.